11, 27. Jesus said, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Then over to Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's good word to us, and so we say, thanks be to God. So last week we began this series about making disciples. We saw from John's Gospel, chapter 15, that Christians, all Christians, are chosen and empowered to bear fruit or to reproduce the transforming life and love of God in the lives of others. All Christians are chosen and empowered for that by Jesus. So this is our part to play. If you're a Christian, this is your part to play in God's big agenda for the world, what he's up to, his plan for all the world uh, to rescue people from their sin and our selfishness, what the New Testament book of Colossians calls the domain of darkness, and to transfer them into the kingdom of his beloved son, you know, a reconciled relationship with God that truly changes us on the inside. That's what God is up to in the world. And every Christian is called in some way to be a part of that. That's why we make disciples. You are made for it, and it's the absolute best way to spend your short life in a very eternally significant, not boring way. That's what we talked about last week. Now today, we're gonna look at these two passages from Matthew, which are uh, interestingly similar and yet a, a little different. Both of them begin with a statement about Jesus' authority. Did you hear that in both of those? Both, he begins with, all things have been given to me by the Father. But then in one, he says, come to me. And the other one, he says, go to the nations, and I'll be with you. One is given before his death and resurrection. One is given after. And these two passages put together, I think will help us understand what it means to be a disciple and what it means to make disciples. I told you I would try to help us understand that better this week, so that's what we're going to do. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And then second, what does it mean to make a disciple of Jesus? Another way of saying this would be, what is a disciple's identity? What is a disciple's mission? But then uh, also, lastly, I want to give us some hope for this endeavor, so we'll talk about what is a disciple's hope. So a disciple's identity, a disciple's mission, and a disciple's hope. First, disciple's identity. I mentioned last week that dictionary.com has the term disciple listed as an archaic term. So it's one of those 
Christian jargon words that gets tossed around sometimes without a very clear idea of what it really means. And so we do have some other terms, right, in our lingo that helps us understand what it means to be a disciple. Uh, Sometimes we use the word follower, followers of Jesus, which the first disciples did literally follow him around. And so we have this saying, followers of Jesus, they watched him, saw him live his life. Uh, which that term is, is mostly helpful, maybe except to some of the younger ones of us in the room that have grown up with the advent of social media and the type of following that takes place there, you know, from afar, from a distance where you're just kind of watching someone. It could confuse your idea of what it means to be a, a follower. Not quite what Jesus was going for. Uh, now, a literal translation of the word disciple would likely render into English something like the word learner or a student. A disciple is a learner or a student of someone. So Christians are learners of Christ, which this is a great term as well. I mean, it helps us understand the the teachability and the humility of a disciple, Um, but it probably leans a little academic for us too at points. You know, we have grown up in classrooms and you think of homework when you think of student or learner and notebooks and things like that. Apprentice is also a pretty good term for disciple. You could think of the Jedi trainees that, you know, wear the braids and swirl their lightsabers around and follow their masters, or maybe more realistically, like a master and apprentice welder, or a master and an apprentice craftsman, a carpenter, some trade like that. So while there may not be a perfect modern word or term to capture what it means to be a disciple, these two passages, these two sayings of Jesus, give us two really powerful symbols that help us understand, okay, what does it mean to be Jesus' disciple? First, he talks about a yoke, and then he talks about baptism. So first, the symbol of the yoke, and this has nothing to do with eggs. This is Y-O-K-E, yoke. That was supposed to be uh, funny, like a yoke, you know. Um, So, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, So, why the imagery of a a yoke? This is like what cows use, you know, when they're hitched up to plow in a field. So, when Jesus says, come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, why would he use that? Why would he use that metaphor when inviting people to follow him or learn from him? Well, he's saying that in order to be my disciple, you will have to come under my authority. You'll have to submit to me. You're going to have to let me lead. I will be in charge. You're not a free-range cow anymore, you know. And this is a big part of what it means to be a disciple, to accept and submit to the authority of a teacher or master. Now, why in the world would you want to do a thing like that? You know, the whole idea of abdicating your right to determine the course of your life, and uh, I think that's really, really hard for us as modern American people. Because most of our modern American identity is built on the ability to make our own decisions, to determine our own ends, self-expression, self-liberation. And what's most important for, for, for us in many ways is not the external needs or demands of our community, but it's that we really look inside ourselves and understand what's most important to me. We find out who I am, and then we go out and be that. This is kind of our cultural storyline. 
You know, it's the storyline of way more movies than you would realize. You start to think about it, and from The Little Mermaid to Mulan to Frozen to the newest Thor movies, and I'm sorry to use all kids' movies example, that's all I get to watch these days, um, my stage in life. These are expectations, you know, there's, in these stories, there's expectations and pressures kind of from the outside community that that main character, protagonist, fill in the blank, Thor, Elsa, Mulan, whoever, is supposed to fulfill, you know, a certain role in life. Uh, but they move through this journey of self-realization, self-actualization. They have these other desires and powers, so they go out to chart their own independent course in life that's more in line with who they are internally, their own internal sense of, of who they want to be. Now, not that everything like in those stories is negative. I'm just trying to illustrate the point that what Jesus says about submission to his authority is probably hard for us. It cuts against the grain for us as people and definitely us as a culture. So why in the world would you want to give that up, that right to self-determination and autonomy, and to take Jesus' yoke and submit to him? Well, he actually helps us, he answers. He says, because I am gentle and lowly in heart. And under his yoke, you will actually find rest for your souls. And I think he's implying here that everyone bears a yoke of some sort. At the end of the day, everyone submits to something, even if it is your own internal machinations and desires. Your own internal leanings can still be a hard master, you know. Your desires conflict. They change and they shift over time. Or even alternatively, finding your, you know, your sense of worth or your authority from some external, other, outside source uh, and the opinion or acceptance of others can be a really hard master too. And this is why Jesus calls out to the weary, the heavy laden, Because we all carry a yoke, internal or external, and they are exhausting. So to be Jesus' disciple means you're not finding your identity in here anymore, or even out there in your own feelings or in the opinion and acceptance of others, but you come under his authority, his yoke. And it's only by doing that that you actually find out who you really are and who you were meant to be. C.S. Lewis uh, ends his book, the last sentences of his classic book, Mere Christianity, are all about this idea. He says, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. If you look inside to the yoke of self, you will find in the long run, as Lewis puts it, only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, and ruin. But if you take the yoke of Christ, you will find him. And he is a gentle and humble master. So what does all this have to do with what it means to be a disciple? To be a disciple means you submit to the authority 
of Jesus. That's the yoke. Now, baptism, the second image is baptism. Uh, when you go to Matthew 28, uh, this is the first thing he tells his disciples to go and do. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, first thing, baptizing them. So baptism, uh, even in this day, it was kind of a rite of initiation into following someone as their disciple. If you remember even earlier in the gospel stories, before Jesus shows up on the scene, John the Baptist is there, and he's making disciples and baptizing them. Uh, when Jesus then later comes on the scene, it said that he began to make and baptize more disciples than John, though Jesus himself didn't do any of the actual baptizing, but that's a point for another day. So why baptism? Why use this as a metaphor or even as an entrance right into discipleship? Well, as many of you know, baptism was used uh, to display the repentance and renewal to a new life. So repenting or unlearning my own way of selfishness and sin and learning a whole new way of thinking and feeling and acting from Jesus. So when we think of a student or a learner in our modern way, as I already said, we tend to think of something way more academic. You know, that students come into a classroom with just an absence of knowledge. They just need to be filled up. Just teach them the class stuff, you know, what they need to know. They'll learn. Their learning tank goes up and they can go out into the world and do the stuff that they need to do. It's not that type of learning with Jesus. With Jesus and why he uses baptism is because there's a whole lot of stuff that we have to unlearn before we can learn his way of living and being. All kinds of sinful attitudes and habits that have to be unlearned along the way. So baptism represents this radical shift called repentance and renewal, a washing, so that a disciple is now a forgiven sinner who's unlearning themselves and learning Christ. So between the yoke and between baptism, if you put these together, I think you could say something like, what is a disciple? Well, it's an imperfect but forgiven sinner now submitted to learning Christ in repentance and faith. What is a disciple? It's an imperfect but forgiven sinner who is submitted to learning Christ in repentance and faith. So if that's what a disciple is, that's what their identity is, what does a disciple do? What does it mean to make disciples? This is the disciple's mission. So a disciple's mission. Uh, now, if I were to poll the room, if I could create out of thin air some sort of amazing Google poll and send it to you and read all of your responses in five seconds, we'd probably get lots of different answers about what does it mean to make disciples? What does it mean to make disciples? So here's maybe what I think are a few common misconceptions. It was not a lisp. I mean, M-Y-T-H. No, myth conceptions is what I tried to say um, about discipleship. So you might think that discipleship is like a next level experience of the Christian life. Becoming a Christian is like going through basic training and the discipleship is like the ranger school that you go to after that. You know, it's for like the really buff Christians, um, not just the normal ones, for like church, uh, church leaders and pastors, not for the ordinary Christian. Not so much, as we'll see. Or you might think, a lot of times we use the term this way as well, uh, you might think of discipleship as like a particular zone or area of church ministry. Like we have discipleship classes, you know, or many churches have a discipleship pastor 
Like they're responsible for all the discipleship that happens in the church and that other things that happen in the church like children's ministry or preaching, that's not really discipleship, which I hope is not true because then I really feel like I'm wasting your time and mine. Um, or you might think of disciple making or discipleship as basically a weekly meeting that has to be outside of normal church meetings. Coffee is a bonus. And you're held accountable in these meetings, you know, for keeping your quiet time or avoiding particular sins like pornography. Or you might think of disciple making as primarily a personal mentoring process. You know, people ask you, have you been discipled? Or you might say, no one has ever discipled me. And what you usually mean by that, what we usually mean by that, is like a one or two year process of sitting with a discipler or a mentor and being rooted and established more firmly in the faith so you can come out on the other side of that process um, a notarized, pedigreed disciple who can then go and make more disciples. And in my humor, I'm actually not, um, I don't want to disparage that type of uh, thing at all. Like I wish that type of experience with a, a, a personal mentor was the norm for all Christians. I think that would be awesome. It is an amazingly powerful thing. And we need way more of that. We need way more mentorship in the church. But what I'm trying to establish today is that disciple making is more comprehensive than any of those things that I just listed, even though that's part of all of them. It's a whole process that encapsulates everything from when a person first hears about Jesus to making a commitment to follow him to their own going out to make more disciples later. So let's return to Jesus' words in Matthew 28 about what does it mean to make disciples. He says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, if you listen to what Jesus said carefully, it seems like his process for making disciples kind of breaks down into three parts. There's going, there's baptizing, and then there's teaching. So going, this means the disciples have to go where there aren't disciples yet. They have to move towards those that are not disciples in order to make them disciples, right? This makes sense. The nations go to the nations. This means the outsiders. So for a disciple to embrace their identity and to embrace their mission is to make a switch in their minds that their spiritual journey does not terminate with them. In all four of the Gospels, the ending of the Gospels contain Jesus' final instructions to his disciples, and they're all about turning outwards. So to embrace your identity as a disciple or a learner of Jesus, then the penny has to drop for you at some point that Christ's purpose in loving and saving and redeeming you doesn't end with you. His dream for you is bigger than you. And it's that you would seek to move others one step closer to him in whatever way that you can. So the penny has to drop. Your mind has to switch. A, a, a switch has to flip in your mind that you realize God didn't just save me for me. He's got something for me to be about. Step one, going. And then step two, baptizing. 
So why this? Why go and baptize? You know, why not go and share the gospel, like, you know, work through the four spiritual laws or the three circles or whatever, you know, way of sharing the gospel you might have? Well, remember, baptism represents someone's initial decision to turn away from their own godless life to Christ in repentance and renewal. And it represents stepping into the fellowship with the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. He says, right, go baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Now, even though baptism is like this one-time initial thing, it represents the culmination of a whole process that someone might go through in hearing about Jesus, processing the gospel, asking questions, considering objections, and then maybe eventually deciding to trust and follow him. So the reality of bringing someone to the point of baptism, this often requires a thousand tiny steps along the way. Now, the initial command can seem so stark, you know, go and baptize. Like, okay, let's get out. Like, am I just supposed to sneak up on someone and just, whoop-bam, you know, baptize them right there. And yes, that is the second time in two weeks that I've referenced Nacho Libre, and I promise it'll never happen again. I'm sorry. Now, Jesus' instruction to, take, to baptize is inclusive of all the many, many steps that someone might take in coming to faith in Christ. Sometimes you might think, my pastors, they are always telling me, yeah, go out there and share your faith. And it's like, dude, I don't even know where to start with that. And we forget that there can be lots of little steps to make in that one big step. Uh, Tim Keller, he's, he has a list of what I think are 10 really helpful steps in getting things started with spiritual conversations with others. First of all, he says, to begin with, just let people around you know that you're a Christian in a natural, unforced way. So it's not like, hey, I'm a Christian. You know, I just, you know, you can talk about your weekend. You can talk about your life. You can talk about your small group. There's lots of natural ways to just let people know. Yeah, I'm a, Believe in Jesus, follower of Jesus. Uh, second, you can ask your friends about their faith and just listen. You don't have to give an answer right away. Maybe you can and maybe God opens the door for that. That's awesome. But maybe you could ask and just listen to begin with. Three, you could listen to your friend's problems. Maybe just offer to pray for them or tell them, I will pray for you. Fourth, you could share your own problems with others and testify to how your faith helps you through them. Take some vulnerability. Uh, five, you could give them a book to read, maybe about specific objections or questions that they have. Number six, you could share your own story of coming to faith in Jesus. Number seven, you could try to answer or dialogue with them about some of their objections or questions. Maybe you could, number eight, invite them to a church event. Number nine, you could offer to read the Bible with them. Number 10, you could take them to a, a small group Bible study or an explore course about Christianity. My point is just that we sometimes think about evangelism only in terms of like steps five through 10. And I need to start at number five, but gosh, that's intimidating. And maybe God does open doors for you to start with, here's the good news of Jesus. But maybe other times there's, you can take smaller steps to get to that place. It's okay to start slowly as long as you're always thinking, what is the next step? And praying for it. So a really encouraging example of this came from a conversation that I had with one of our church members just this week over lunch. This guy's not like a seminary dude. He's not a pastor. He's just a regular business guy that works a business job. And not too long ago, he 
uh, it was found out that one of his business associates on his team had mishandled company funds and lost company money. And our dear brother was told that since this associate was part of his team, he would be personally responsible for covering the lost amount out of his own profits and earnings. And of course, his initial reaction was exactly what yours and mine would have been, which was no, <laughs> that's not fair. And I don't think that's how we should do business. But about uh, 2 a.m. that night, uh, he woke up in the middle of the night and this thought was in his mind as if from the Lord. And that was, I have paid your debt. Why are you so reluctant to pay this one? Ouch, right? So the next morning he, he calls his boss and he says, look, I'll do it. I'll pay what he owes. But first, you need to know why. It's not because I think this is a great business decision, because I don't. But it's because of my faith. God has repaid a debt for me that I can never repay. So I'll repay this guy's debt. What just happened there? Well, our friend was faithful to take a very normal, stinky life situation and with God's help and God's prompting through prayer, he just helped his boss, who is not a Christian, take one small step towards Jesus. Now, did the boss start weeping and give his life to Jesus in that moment? No. He was like, great, I'm so glad you'll pay it. <laughs> oh, man. But our friend was able to help engage his boss in such a way that his boss now knows that this guy is a Christian. And he even was really able to give him the gist of the Christian message in, in a moment. This is one small step along the path of making a disciple. Are there more steps to be taken here? Yeah. But our brother was faithful to take the one step that was right in front of him. Why don't you stop and, and think about the people that God has placed in your world, in your life, what might be one small step you could take towards them in helping them take one small step towards Jesus? Could you make that a matter of prayer this week? Set a reminder, one small step. You could pray towards that. So going, baptizing, and then third, teaching. The third part of the process of disciple making. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And it's important that this comes after baptizing because with baptism, there's this foundation laid of permanent inclusion and acceptance into the life and love of the Trinity. This protects us from any sort of performance-driven disciple-making where my acceptance before God, you know, comes on, you know, comes with how well I'm reading the Bible or if I'm sharing my faith enough or if I'm behaving rightly. This too is a process. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's a lot. <laughs> Not just because Jesus said so much, because it's so stinking hard. It's a process. Can anyone really say they have this down? Like the no greed thing? Caring for the least of these? Learning to observe, not just memorize. Learning to live out all Jesus commands. This is a process, learning to, to bend our lives and our habits around what he has taught us, 
This is a process for all of us. So I'd like to, with that in mind, suggest uh, a definition for making disciples. And it's hard to give definitions because you can always tweak it and make it better, but I want us to, to make a start. I would say making disciples then is intentionally living your life to help those around you take their next step toward Jesus. Intentionally living your life to help those around you take their next step towards Jesus. Maybe that's in the going. Maybe that's in the baptizing phase of things. Maybe that's in teaching. But you're always mindful of the people around you. How can I help them take one next step in their relationship with Jesus? So you make disciples by starting with who's around me? Who has God put in my life? Who are my neighbors? Who's in my family? Who are my friends? Who are my coworkers? And you sort out, where are they at with Christ? That's going. You have to learn them. You have to learn where they're at. And maybe there's someone that doesn't really have a Christian friend or much Christian influence at all. What's their next step? Well, it's becoming friends with you because you're a Christian. Or maybe they do have some Christian friends. Maybe you're their friend, but no one's really ever expressed to them what the love of God in Jesus Christ is all about. And you're there to figure out how can I talk with them about that? Or maybe the, we all have people in our life like that, and then there's other people in our lives that are believers. Maybe they're, they're in your small group. Maybe they're in your home. Maybe they're your kids. Maybe they're your spouse. Maybe they're your roommates. You can always be thinking, how can I help them take one next step towards Jesus? Again, this can happen in both formal mentoring relationships or in less formal ways. Uh, Craig Glassick, who's an Australian brother that I've been dialoguing with for the past year and a half about all the Vine Project stuff that our church has been working through, um, he, he's uh, shared with me a story, and he's written on this some as well, about a time in his life that someone helped him become a disciple in a, in, in a way that you might not always think of. So in his late 20s, um, Craig contracted an illness, a virus, that led to him essentially being housebound and debilitated for six or seven years. And uh, he, this is what he writes about it. He says, I, I once was a prisoner of chronic illness, housebound with the black dog as my companion. And I think he means actually depression is what he means by that. And when I asked medical specialists if I would ever recover, most just shrugged their shoulders. My physicality, which once had fashioned my identity, he was a big-time cricket player, actually, for a while, if you know what cricket is. All that was now a distant memory. I'd lost who I was, no energy, no car, no job, and dependent on relatives for accommodation. My dear wife had married one version of me and suddenly woke up next to another. One day, I undertook the challenge of shuffling to and from the letterbox. I think that's mailbox for USA translation. Uh, and the effort drained me. With a letter in hand, I amp ambled back through the door and wilted on the couch. And I thought, I just can't do this anymore. I cannot live the rest of my life like this. People will understand. God knows my heart. But I opened the letter anyway. It said, Dear Craig, my name is John. Our mutual friend Mike told me about your long struggle with illness. 
He asked me to write and encourage you to persevere in Christ in spite of what you're going through. My family and I have endured significant physical suffering over many years. I hope you don't mind me sharing our story. And I'll summarize. He proceeded to document a life of unfathomable physical and emotional pain. Uh, At birth, John's devoted Christian parents were told he would not walk and probably would not live long. He had four operations on his cleft palate before he was three. He contracted measles at age four, reducing his hearing to 25% in one ear, 60% in the other. And then finally, in adulthood, John received the diagnosis of an extremely rare genetic disorder. And as he aged, all his joints crumpled from cartilage degeneration, and both hips were replaced by the time he was 50. For much of his adult life, he had been confined to an electric wheelchair. And the tale of physical and emotional suffering doesn't end there. John and his loyal wife, Kathy, have four children. Subsequent to John's diagnosis, three of them were found to have the same genetic disorder. So many of the earthly hopes they held for their children would never eventuate. So John confessed that after decades of relentless suffering, he nearly took his own life. But having passed through that period, he continued to persevere. And then Craig says, Suicide had first set its own spindly roots in my mind the very morning I received this letter. Yet John's experience clearly dwarfed mine, and I found it hard to comprehend. As I finished John's letter, I burst into tears. God, in his sovereignty, had orchestrated my reading of that letter to perfection. Through unfathomable sorrow, he sustained John and kept him in the palm of his hand. He could do the same for me. He goes on to say, I doubt John thought of it in these terms at that time, but he was being a disciple maker. I learned later that the pain of typing was so great for John that even with the strongest of painkillers, his powdery joints could only handle 10 minutes of typing per day. He squeezed from whatever capacity he had that week to write a letter of encouragement to an unknown brother. And though the Lord has since restored my health, John's condition has not altered. And I've often reflected on the way God used John's letter to help renew my trust in him. Over the years, smaller, simpler notes, emails, Facebook messages, texts have served the same purpose. Each one inched me forward. Most of us are capable of doing the same in some way for others. John's example does not leave us much wiggle room. Making disciples can take many forms, but it is simply and intentionally using whatever God has given you to help move others one step closer to Christ. I like the way Craig phrased it, squeezing whatever capacity you have that week into helping others take one step towards Christ. Maybe that is writing someone a letter who you know is struggling. Maybe that's teaching children here in our children's ministry. Asking meaningful questions when you have the guys over to grill that does go beyond small talk or when you go out with the girls. Maybe it means starting to prayer walk your neighborhood, learning the names and addresses of people who live there and praying for them by name. Maybe this is reading the Bible to your children in the evening. All these are part of the process that we call making disciples.
So you might wonder, so is like everything I do making disciples, like cleaning the toilet, baking cookies? No, that's not what I'm saying. And there are some key ingredients to disciple making, and I'll get to those next week. But all I'm trying to say for today is that making disciples is not only something that every Christian is called to, but it's something that every Christian can do. In whatever unique or challenging season of life you find yourself, we are all called to help others take one small step towards Christ. Now, even though I'm up here trying to like demystify and simplify and help you see that disciple making is an accessible thing for every Christian, it doesn't mean that it's easy. It still will be difficult and intimidating. As one person said, it is no small thing to invest in the lives of others. It will be messy. But this is where these Matthew passages are so encouraging. They teach us the hope of a disciple. Even the first disciples, you see, when they encounter the resurrected Jesus, did you notice what it said about them? It said they worshiped him, but some doubted. And that could actually just as easily be translated, they worshiped him, but they doubted. As in, it's possible that all 11, when they saw the resurrected Jesus, they worshiped him, but they were hesitant. You know, about how is the rest of this story gonna go? I think it'd be awesome to see the resurrected Jesus. You know, I was like, man, I would have no more doubts, but apparently they did. And that's kind of refreshing to me too, honestly, that even these guys, they see Jesus and they worship him, but they still doubt. So what does Jesus do with his worshiping, doubting disciples? Come on, guys, cut it out. He moves towards them. The Great Commission is a gracious commission given to wavery disciples. It says Jesus came to them. He knows they worship him as they doubt him, and he comes to them. And his words are meant to fill them with hope. He says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. So now you can go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, the Great Commission is a gracious commission for worshiping, doubting disciples. Our hope in disciple-making is never ourselves. We are imperfect disciples that cling to a perfect Christ. He doesn't send us in your authority, in my authority, on your experiences or goodness, but on his own. Our ultimate hope in making disciples is not us, but it's Jesus who is with us. And so today, as we come to this table, we remember that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he was with those same disciples who would abandon him, run from him, and betray him. And yet he moved on toward the cross for them and for us. And as we approach this table, we remember Jesus' presence with us still. He promised to be with the disciples until the end of the age. Last I checked, that has not occurred yet. And so he's promised to still be with us, to meet us 
even here today as we approach this table in faith, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So if you're taking the Lord's Supper today, it's open to all those who have taken the yoke of Christ and would call him their master. If you have not done that, I hope you see or can hear a bit today about his goodness, his gentleness to you, and that you might even turn your life over to him today. But for all who are taking, if you'd use the center and then the wall aisles to approach the table, and then these other two middle aisles to return to your seats. And once you've taken the elements, if you would just hold on to them until everyone has received them and have your seat, and then I'll come back up in just a moment and lead us all in the taking of the Lord's Supper together. So let's pray, and then the table will be open to you. So Jesus, we thank you for these words that you gave us, words that wavering disciples need to hear. You invite us, even this morning, each of us who are weary and heavy laden with, with many cares, can come to you and find that what you ask of us is good. It is light. And then as we come to the table, strengthen us, Jesus. Jesus. 